Restaurant Leadership Conference has always been the home for senior restaurant execs to collaborate and discuss current challenges and solutions. Be a part of this exclusive group from April 10th to 13th in Arizona. Register today at restaurantleadership.com. Welcome to Menu Feed, a bi-weekly podcast from Winsight Media's two food service brands, Restaurant Business and Food Service Director. I'm Pat Kobe, Senior Editor covering menu food and drink for both brands. Today I'm chatting with Barbara Sibley, owner and operator of La Palapa, an independent Mexican restaurant in New York City's East Village neighborhood. Barbara opened La Palapa 20 years ago bringing authentic regional Mexican cuisine to New Yorkers who just thought that nachos, fajitas, and burritos were what Mexican food was all about. While the menu has evolved over the years, there are many untouchables that she will never take off. This became especially apparent during the pandemic when regulars were comforted by ordering the menu items they had come to love. The pandemic was just one of several crises La Palapa has endured over 20 years. Barbara also navigated the restaurant and her team through 9-11, Hurricane Sandy, and all the day-to-day potholes along the way, leading with a blend of compassion, flexibility, and resiliency. This operational style and her excellent track record earned her the 2022 Operator of the Year Award from the Bar and Restaurant Show. Listen as she tells her story and talks about what's next. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Pat. Great to be here. So let's start about the journey you took to open La Palapa. That was about 20 years ago, and it was kind of a groundbreaking concept at the time. So tell me how you got to La Palapa. Well, at that at that point, I'd been managing restaurants maybe 15 years, quite a long time already. And when it came time to open my own place, what I really wanted to do was very simply be able to eat in New York what I had as, as in my Mexican childhood. Because growing up in Mexico City, really, I had a very Mexican childhood because at that point, Mexico was pre-NAFTA. And um, I really was quite homesick for that cuisine. And there really wasn't anywhere I could have it in New York. And so the, the really the idea, the concept behind it was was very selfish. It was whatever I had a craving for. So um, it's very home cooking and it's very authentically whatever I would get in Mexico City. So so the voyage just came. It was time. It was time to do my own thing. They're working with a partner at that point. We had several different concepts. And when we found the location on St. Mark's Place, it was clear that really the best use of it was going to be for my Mexican concept. And so how did you differentiate the menu from what most New Yorkers were used to at Mexican restaurants at the time? Well, it was interesting. First, it was completely bilingual. So it was in English and in Spanish. Uh, The descriptions in English were quite extensive. And I avoided really having things that I considered sort of New York style Tex-Mex on the menu. There were no nachos, burritos, or fajitas, for example, chimichangas, any of these things that sort of had become standard and very delicious, very comforting food, but really had nothing to do with actual Mexican cuisine, as well as things like chips and salsa, which, you know, once again, I love them. They're delicious, but they are not Mexican. So what is Mexican Mexico City cuisine? I mean, what differentiates it? 
Well, first of all, the tacos, the tacos are really uh, a mix and match kind of concept. You have one of these and two of those, and that's how you go through your meal. And then you might reorder another round. And the the tradition of having salsas on the table, now, the scene of, you know, with the way Mexican cuisine is interpreted right now in New York um, has changed quite a lot in those 20 years. Mm-hmm. But we really went for very home style as if you were just at a corner taqueria in Mexico City, and that's what you would have, mm-hmm. as well as then complemented with entrees that really come from the, my mother's repertoire, my home repertoire, uh, which which was dish specialty dishes from quite a few different regions in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the signatures you introduced then that are still on the menu? Well, a lot of our menu are untouchables. It's really a wonderful thing because we've been there for so long. And as a chef, a lot of people ask me like, oh, chef, oh, Barbara, what should I have? And I'm always, my, my response is usually whatever brought you here. Because if they're coming back and they have a craving for something, you know, then that's what they should have. Mm-hmm. So we really have most of our menu is quite stable. And so for creativity and for fun, we do a lot of festivals and specials and think about holidays and different things that that we miss and we do that occasionally i've taken dishes off and without fail someone has been upset so what is your favorite dish on the menu do you have a a certain one that's a favorite (laughs) well really my favorite is lamb shank that we do barbacoa that's a lamb shank that's wrapped in chile ancho and whole in we open up the chile. It's like in Mexico, the way you do it's not like it's the same kind of barbecue. It's really like a pit braise. And so these lamb shanks are in a paste of chile ancho and garlic, and then wrapped with softened chile sancho. So the meat is really moist mm. and then braised slowly. And it's a dish that uh, that my mother used to make. And I love it with a little avocado, and it's just delicious. Mm. That's, that would be my favorite, but really it's you're asking me about all my children i love them (laughs) i love the word untouchables i you know i haven't heard any chef call their you know favorites that before so i i'm (laughs) going to use that (laughs) but um as far as the tacos go do they have any unusual fillings that might not show up in other mexican restaurants well we do we we do the barbacoa as a filling but we do it with a with a, a beef braise in the taco we use different kinds of mushrooms different you know our uh, tacos al pastor which is we did the first tacos al pastor almost in in new york city and a lot of places use a, at this point use like a, a paste a pre-made paste and so we don't we've always made ours from scratch one of the beauties and sort of curious things about having opened so long ago is that truly we had to make everything from scratch. So mm. I think if we open today, everyone would be, but it's so artisanal. It's so homemade. We make our own cheese. We make all of our own adobos. Every day we make about 30 different salsas, all of our moles. We did not make a mole poblano at that point. We only make it at Cinco de Mayo because it, since there are so many people from Puebla in New York, the sort of go-to mole has been a doctored mole poblano that New Yorkers know very well. And we sort of felt like, why would we do something? Once again, because the point of the menu was to have people try new things mm-hmm. and to sort of open the palate and introduce New Yorkers to sort of this deeper Mexico that they didn't know, the sort of like really without, you know, I've had Mexicans come to my restaurant and say, oh, it's better than in Mexico. You know, it's just because even Diana Kennedy, 
when she had our queso fresco, because we make our own queso fresco, couldn't believe how good the queso fresco was and wow. just kept eating it. And eating it. <laughs> That's impressive. Wow. Um, so is there a new dish that you've added recently that you're especially excited about, or maybe not that recently, but, you know, maybe in the last. Well, late, yeah, lately, because uh, in Gotham West Market, we have sort of like a taco booth, like very sort of traditional taqueria booth. And we also opened a bar and it's been fun to do sort of a, a cevicheria in that bar. And mm -hmm. so I'm playing with a lot of different cheap, different ceviches. We have one that's very spicy. It's an aguachile, which is sort of lime juice and chilies in the marinade. And then there's one that is not quite as traditional, but I love, which is a salmon ceviche with um, mangoes and uh, husk cherries. And then we also make one that's more sort of like Veracruz style with olives and capers. And then, so then now I'm it's in the spring, I'm getting ready to do a new, a new round, a new, a new bunch of uh, ceviches because you know, there's so many options that we often, sometimes do one with the sea scallops and a sauce from the Yucatan, which is a salsa agria, which is sort of like different citrus and cucumbers and pickled red onions. And things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's sort of, that's what I'm getting ready for now that we've had a little taste of spring in New York. Yeah, definitely. And I know that you you opened two taco bars, one's in Gotham West and the other's in another food hall, Vanderbilt Hall. Yeah, Urban Space Vanderbilt. And um, so... Did you take some of the tacos from your La Palapa's menu and transfer them? We there? do. Yes, definitely. We we do. And we we still cook some of it down at the flagship because I found it was so important to have consistency of flavor. In between all of this, we had a, a, a La Palapa in the West Village for 10 years, La Palapa Rocola. And I remember when I opened that, just having and having a new kitchen crew, and it's so People's taste buds, people's palate is so specific. Um, and I remember hiring someone there and feeling like, oh, they could they could use to make the recipes. But I always say that restaurants and restaurant managements, it's like it's sort of like a, a sand dune where you could see a sand dune and it looks exactly the same as it was last week. But actually, it's moved five miles down the beach, one grain of sand at a time. <laughs> so it's very easy for things to float away and not really realize how much it's changed. So when I opened the taco bars, which is what I call them, the little taquerias, I found it very important to make sure that the flavors were the same. Mm -hmm. That if people were looking for la palapa and the, like a, a classic tinga de pollo, that it wasn't going to taste different at the other markets. So that so that was really really the key. And you're also known as having some of the best margaritas in New York. So what makes them so special? <laughs> Well, early on, it, what made them so special was that they were natural. You know, in when we opened, I mean, every no one used no, lot, real lime juice. I mean, no one squeezed their own juice. No one made their own purees. It was all out of the bottle. You know, for me, coming from Mexico, it was always just, it made me so sad. Yeah. <laughs> so when we opened La Palapa, um, and this is something that, you know, we did tremendous amounts of infused tequilas, infused sotoles mezcal, any mezcal that comes to the market, they're always into the, into the New York market, generally come by La Palapa because we're a great place to start. And we're always open to, you know, supporting new uh, agave spirits that come from Mexico. So, so it was just really that I started doing this very early on, mm -hmm. um, mainly for the, because it was the same mission. Like if you were going to have it, I wanted it to be like home. 
So what are some of the variations that you serve? I know that you have the classic line. We have the classic. We have a delicious hibiscus, hibiscus margarita. We make a chambord and mezcal drink, which is sort of a bit uh, a bit like a if a Negroni met a Diablo and made something else. So it's like a La Joya. And we're working on things all the time. Even in the pandemic, when we were doing a lot of hot cocktail, you know, warm cocktails to go, mm-hmm. uh, we had a lot of fun with the agave, doing Chile-infused tequilas with apple cider and things like that. Things that are not as traditional. Right. Um, sort of in the same, the same feeling. And so did the margaritas um, reputation kind of spark the idea for Holiday Cocktail Lounge, which you open next door to La Palapa? Well, actually, it's completely independent. So Holiday, I don't own. Holiday, I run. I run it. Uh, and it was, it's been an incredibly fun project and wonderful. I had lived in the building for many, many years and, you know, had looked into managing Holiday at a, at, in, a, in a previous at a previous time, it was owned by a, a father and his two sons. And when the father passed away, the sons decided to sell the building. And I spoke to the new landlord and I was like, look, I own La Palapa. If you need any help, let me know. And it was Robert Ehrlich and he was amazing. And he said, yes, actually, I need some help. Will you help me? So I ended up helping him with an extensive renovation. Uh, it turned out that the building was in quite a, a state of disrepair. It's a 150-year-old building in the East Village with no money put into maintenance for a long, long time. So we had sort of a renovation that I describe as a experience between Zen, of Zen and archaeology because we found incredible things. It turns out that Holiday is the 50th liquor license after Prohibition. Wow. And so re- restoring this wonderful East Village dive bar and bringing it current has been a fabulous project to be involved in. And I, I early on in my restaurant management career, I ran Telephone Bar and Grill. So I, I came to it with great understanding, both of the history of the East Village, but also of, you know, how to run a bar and how to, how to run a bar program. And so it was, it's been incredibly uh, creative. So it's been, and also during the pandemic, they're side by side. And so it's, been great uh, support. This, both staffs have been amazing, great mm. support for each other. But anyway, it's 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 been a really 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 fun. We just launched our seventh menu here at Holiday, and uh, now that I've done that menu, now I get to work on the La Palapa menu in the ceviches. <laughs> so you serve very different drinks there, though I noticed from the menu that you know there's very. I don't even know if you have a margarita on the menu, but I saw a lot of gin and uh, vodka and other types of drinks. The idea, about, the idea behind Holiday was to, first of all, to keep it true to what it was. It has, it has, it had been a burlesque house. It's had, it's had so many iterations. You know, it's definitely a speakeasy. There's a tunnel that goes across the street. It was, you know, had been has, as I said, it's been there since definitely since prohibition days. So it's really what would happen if you had a classic dive bar, but you had top fantastic craft cocktails, right? So why, you know, my idea was that shouldn't be an oxymoron. That should just be expected. And so that's what it is. It's really, a you know, really a neighborhood, fantastic jewel, you know, sort of jewel box of a bar, but the, the cocktails are not divey. The cocktails are, are 
beautiful crafted cocktails. Can you describe one or two? Well, one of the things that we've we've done is since it's seventy five St. Marks, the the every new menu we do a um, a, a holiday. 75 which is basically you know it's it's a riff on a 75 and so mm-hmm. we are infusing with some with lapsang souchong and uh you know topping it with some bubbly and this menu this current menu is actually a love letter to bars that we miss because one of the things in the east village and having been here so long and having had lapa lapa here so long and seen so many bars go out of business or places go out of business. We didn't want to really be sad about where we are, that we've lost some friends in a way, but we wanted to celebrate them because the sort of Proustian that going into these, having these flavors would be sort of like time travel. Mm-hmm. So the, the most recent menu is to all the bars we loved. And we have drinks named after Mars Bar and CBGB's and Max's Kansas City because Rob, the owner of Holiday used to get snuck into Max's Kansas City by his uncle when he was eight. They would hide him under the table. So we have all these drinks and then also food. We have food. We're making our own pierogies sort of in honor of Odessa. And uh, we have some nachos that come from my very first restaurant job in the East Village, which was Bandito's, where the, the current chef was a friend of mine who was a Broadway actor. Drew McVitie. So he's also chefing at Holiday right now. So we met there many years ago. So it's it's really a fun project. So the menus at Holiday are based on East Village fanzines of the 80s. So it's like a little, ma- each time it's a little magazine. Uh, we have quotes by lots of uh, interesting folks, Kathy Squires and Robert, Simons, Robert Simonson and uh, Sarah Larson about bars that they miss that are gone. So, you know, it's been it's been it's a fun project each time to do one of these menus because it's also pretty literary and artistic and uh, a different a different concept each time. So just this week you were in Las Vegas to accept an award at the bar and restaurant show. So tell me about that. Well, it was such an honor. First of all, everyone who was nominated were amazing. And it was also quite a surprise to be nominated. And it was uh, really, they were honoring operators who were both good at what they do at running places, but also were committed to their community. So it was very meaningful uh, award to be given. So I was awarded operator of the year. Wow. How exciting. It's very, it's amazing. I'm still sort of pinching myself. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's cool. So I heard you say in an interview that you have a PhD in restaurant crisis management. So you operated La Palapa through 9-11, Hurricane Sandy, and a global pandemic. (laughs) So how did you weather all these crises and remain optimistic? And, you know, what advice would you give other restaurateurs who are still reeling from the pandemic in a lot of cases? Well, I I think to remember that nothing is lost, right? That nothing that we learn and nothing we do is is lost and you never know when you're going to use it again. That somehow to remember that you have the you have the resiliency within you to do that. I mean, just doing the just being a restaurant manager, a restaurant owner on a daily basis, you have so many different things that you have to troubleshoot and to not try to be too holding on to the normal because what was normal wasn't normal anyway. 
like we think in retrospect, it was normal, but it was a day-to-day thing. And you have to take it day-to-day. You have to be able to just really view everyone with a lot of kindness and compassion, yourself included, because you don't know where everybody's coming from somewhere out in, from a different place. And we have to acknowledge that there are there are gaps. There are huge gaps. A lot of people say, oh, aren't you excited? They're busy again. But people don't understand that you have sort of different sort of, I don't want it sounds like a melodramatic thing, but chasms. So so you will, you know, you have potholes that in your operation or in your life that you don't even know are there. And you don't know each organization is different and every day is different. So the best advice I would be is just to really rem- remind yourself that you have that flexibility and take the creative in the crisis and take take that and take it one day at a time and take care of your team as they take care, took such great care of me. I mean, that without my teams, I couldn't have, you know, I wouldn't be here at all. And um, they're a very, very special group of people with incredible dedication and they have such creativity and such, you know, great spirit. You know, they were my inspiration, you know, that we would get, you know, a call for, oh, World Central Kitchen needs 3000 meals tomorrow. They'd be like, yes, okay, we'll be here at 5 a.m. No, just the, the and you know, amazing, amazing spirit. Or like at holiday, I'd be like, oh, well, today we're going to be figuring out how to serve drinks through the window. Let's, well, how are we going to do this? You know, it's just like, you know, I learn from them every day. Mm, uh, so that's, that's really, really an important part of that. Sort of listening to your staff, taking care of your staff, and then just being open, being open to learn from them and being open to learn from the moment. Are most of your employees long-term employees? They, they've been with you for a while? Yes, a lot of them. A lot of them. You know, people that are new have been there a year or two, three years, and people stay. I have staff that have been there since we opened. You know, wow. All places. That's so, amazing. yeah, they're, you know, and I appreciate them all the more for it uh, because it means that we're doing something right. And it means that, we're a fun place to be. You know, we have to still have fun. It's hard work. Restaurants are hard work. Mm. So if you can't enjoy it and you can't have fun, then, you know, I live next to my places. And a lot of folks ask me, they're like, oh, you can't get away. I was like, well, if I needed to get away, I would be in the wrong line of work because it's, you know, it's not that you don't need self-care and you don't need to take a break. But it, it, the fact is, is that things happen all the time, even in the smoothest times. Mm-hmm. You know? So you have to, to be ready. And I think that it's just, it is important to, as I said, to acknowledge that there are gaps in staffing, in production, in, in all kinds of ways that, that know, that are kind of invisible to most folks. Mm. So it's just important to, to acknowledge that. And you were extremely philanthropic and generous to the community during the pandemic and to your employees. So how did those outreach efforts, you know, help get you through the pandemic? And tell me a little bit about some of the things that you did. Well, it really started almost the very first week. I had a friend who knew nurses at NYU and she called me and she had me cater a meal to them. This was so early in the pandemic and that it, that we made a buffet. <laughs> that was the last buffet we made. <laughs> After that, everything was individually packaged. But it really it really was grassroots at first. I mean, it was folks, you know, an in-law in our family is um, was a resident at Columbia Presbyterian. He's a resident in the, pul- you know, a pulmonology resident in his first year. 
Wow. And we started taking meals up there. And then it was just an amazing, wonderful synchronicity that um, Herminio Torres, who's this, who I've known since he was born, and he uh, is a brand, he works for Ilegal Mezcal and knows the folks at City Winery. And all of they all had vans and cars and all of a sudden had nothing to do. And we started delivering meals together. And it was really, you know, if it hadn't been for Herminio and his friends, you know, just, you know, we never would have been able to deliver what we had delivered. So, you know, it was really, we were all so grateful because, yeah, we were, we were doing good. And we, you know, then we ended up doing meals for World Central Kitchen, thousands and thousands of meals mm-hmm. for World Central Kitchen, as well as doing the ones that, Herminio knew a doctor at Lincoln Hospital, for example, mm-hmm. and up in the Bronx. You have to remember that not only were people getting sick with COVID, not only were the doctors working incredible hours under terrible circumstances, but people were also getting sick in food service Mm. and small restaurants were closed. We were in a lockdown. So they literally had, were working with no food. So we started this, you know, it was sort of like, like an old fashioned barn raising really was what it was like, you know, it was everyone and, and, and ultimately I can say we were so grateful because it gave us a mission. It gave us something to do. It gave us a sense that we weren't powerless, that, you know, that we could actually do something and help and help get through it. And so even though it was a huge philanthropic effort, I think I've donated over 80,000 meals. I continue to donate uh, with Gotham West Market to Covenant House on a weekly basis. Ultimately, you know, we really benefited all of us that did that work because it really, you know, gave us a connection to, to people that I think that we wouldn't have had. We made some wonderful relationships. It was, it was fun to take my daughter for her booster and then go up to Bellevue and be able to give them meals and say, you're, you're an amazing team here. <laughs> you know? So, you know, it'll keep going. And I, I think that it's a, the lesson from that is that we really have, the ability if through my teeny tiny kitchen we could feed that many people you know we really have the resources we really should be able to eradicate hunger it's it would be possible i mean to me that's my takeaway well you also have an incredible amount of energy to be running your restaurant and doing all those meals you know all over the city it's just amazing Again, not not alone. It's my team. Right. No, I I know. But you initiated. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, and you didn't even pare down the menu at La Palapa during that time. I mean, the menu stayed the same. Well, well, that's just that's listening. So what happened was I did think that I would. I did. You know, I was prepared. We had the urban space, Vanderbilt space was closed the entire time, which makes sense. Midtown lunch is it's it's go to. And that's that was not there. Gotham West Market is in a residential building. And even though about 40 percent of the tenants left, the tenants that were there, once again, they needed support. And we did everything we could. And uh, Gotham did everything they could to keep the market open even though, you know, some places closed and it got, it was very bare bones. But La Palapa, what I realized is that people did not want a different experience. People that were at home ordering from La Palapa wanted to have what they remembered Mm. and what they 
were cra- once again what they were craving. Very funny one one day with my sous chef Paulina, we um, somebody ordered a piece. They wanted a piece of tres leches cake, and we had the cake baked, but we hadn't frosted it, and because everything was just you know we were freeze every it was locked down. We started freezing everything that we had cooked, trying to save whatever we could. And we were like, okay, they want one slice of cake. Let's make this cake. So we soaked it in the three milks. We frosted it. We sent her the slice of cake. And, uh, you know, Domingo, my chef, was like, we'll never sell that cake. Like, what have you done? <laughs> like, we could have saved it. But we sold that cake with, wow. within a couple of days because <laughs> folks at home really wanted the full experience. And so I didn't pare down my menu. I simplified it somewhat. There were one or two things that, you know, that weren't staying fresh. So it was really based then on like, well, what's staying fresh? Because if you're, you have something that on a normal basis, you only sell one or two of, let's not do that. And also we had less staff, right? And we had to just be much more nimble. Mm. So it was, we, we, I did tweak it. It wasn't exactly the same. One thing I used to do is I used to do a different menu for, for lunch and for dinner. Mm -hmm. And now I have the same menu all the time. Mm. And then Brunch was very pared down because we were really known for like an in-person festive boozy brunch. And so that wasn't happening. So mm. we pared that down and then we, and then now we're putting things back. Some things will always be changed. Like I'll never do a separate lunch menu again. You know, it's also, it's also, so it was, you know, one of those things that was, had become a little untouchable that needed to be touched, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that it, it was a little bit archaic for us to do that and distracting and, and, you know, you know, why, why have that other focus when really it wasn't necessary, it wasn't needed. And so now we have the same menu all day. So, you know, there have been changes, but basically we, I realized right away, I mean, people wanted to have a really lovely meal at home. They Mm. didn't want to have something super simple and pared down. They were looking for something, you know, some restaurants did do that. And I have to say, even as a customer, as a guest, like when I order from them, I'm like, why don't you have that one dish that, (laughs) I know it's simpler for, you know, but I also understand everybody's dealing yeah. with their own perspective. Yeah. <clears throat> well, w- hopefully we're on the other side of all these crises for the time being anyway. So as we move through 2022, what are you most looking forward to both personally and professionally? Oh, I'm so looking forward to the warm weather. Is that <laughs> Maybe it's very simple, <laughs> but, um, but in New York, you know, we all, we, you know, the level of, of anxiety when people have, even if it's, even if we're at a, you know, almost zero surge, people still feel, will feel much, much happier when they can be out and about and in the sunny weather. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm, you know, I am, as I said, I'm really looking forward to doing the next Lapa Lapa menu, which is, will be happening very soon. And it's exciting to be, you know, doing real menus. It is exciting to be doing like the holiday menu is like the first real menu, even though we did two menus during the pandemic, because I just felt our creativities of the team. This was the first one that's really like a book. And so I'm just, I'm hoping to have in, you know, it, we get very, very busy in the, in the summer months. So obviously I'm looking forward to some really great, fun, festive times. Uh, and I'm looking forward to really having some time to be, be even more creative, to really to take care of the sort of the culinary, culinary creativity as opposed to the operational creativity for a little bit. Thanks so much for sharing your inspirational story, Barbara. Please join us next time for another episode of Menu Feed as we explore more topics with restaurateurs and chefs. You can download this podcast and past episodes on Apple, 
Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. Don't forget, Restaurant Leadership Conference returns to Arizona this April 10th through 13th. Claim your spot now at restaurantleadership.com. Space is filling up quickly.